And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whatever the case may be around this rotating globe, which you can see at the very top right-hand corner of our homepage. Welcome to The Other Side of Midnight, another edition of a show that is in search of anomalies, except we don't have to search very hard and long to look around us and see that the planet right now is a plethora of anomalies. I mean, there's big anomalies, tiny anomalies, weird anomalies, interesting anomalies, boring anomalies. Um, before I get into the, the subject of what we're going to do tonight, because we're, we're kind of doing a little different format. Yes, it's open lines. So I want to give out the phone numbers so you guys can, uh, you know, chime in at any time you want. So this is what you do. You call 917-889-8802. 917-889-8802. One more time with feeling. 917-889-8802. And what we're going to do is we're going to have a kind of a main conversation during each of the hours. The first uh, is with our old friend Rick Spence, Dr. Richard Spence at the University of Utah. And we're going to talk some history. We're going to talk Trump. We're going to talk impeachment. I can hear screaming. Oh, I can hear the screaming in the background. Uh, we're going to talk uh, Russia. You know, big. what's the big deal with Russia? Russia, we need some context for this whole Russia conversation, which has gotten Trump into huge, uh, as George Bush used to say, uh, deep doo-doo. And it's because of this extraordinary fascination with Russia. I think, uh, was it Nancy Pelosi who basically stood up at a uh, meeting the other day in the uh, cabinet room and pointed her finger at the president and said, everything with you goes back to Putin. All roads go back to Putin. Well, but why? Why is a country which has a lower GNP than one of the United States, let's say, pick New York. I mean, people pick countries. They pick Italy. They pick... I'm, you know, let's let's be real. Russia throws a weight, you know, in terms of you know heavyweight championships, less than New York State, or Florida, or Texas, certainly California. I mean, California is a much more powerful country GNP-wise, something like six or seven, than Russia. So why are we all so captivated, fixated, focused on Putin? And Russia, and hopefully, our friend Rick Spence will provide us with an extraordinarily, you know, credible answer. So we'll we'll, we'll await his his uh, verdict on you know why Russia. Before we get into any of this tonight, um, I want to give you a little background. I've been off the air you know several weeks now, with a cascade of failures that frankly is boring, 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 but necessary to maybe explain. People who have been raised of my generation, when you hear radio or you watch television or whatever, it's either with a major network with extraordinary resources or a major network with extraordinary resources like the one I used to work with, CBS, or NBC or ABC or Fox or MSNBC or, you know, CNN, whatever. People think of media, they think of resources and backups and you know, supplements, you know, when, when shows are scheduled, if they can't have a, um, you know, given host, 
a substitute comes in. Well, all these people are paid, and there are vast staffs, both of editorial writers and production assistants and producers and executive producers and technicians, oh God, yeah, technicians, all of who are laboring 24-7 around the clock in shifts to keep these programs on the air come hell or high water. That is not the case with this current new mechanism of broadcasting called uh, the Internet, streaming media, uh, blogs, um, uh, live streaming. Uh, each of the broadcasters that you see on, let's say, uh, TalkStream Live, nine chances out of ten, it's someone like me sitting in a studio that they have created um, who under the best of circumstances may have you know, a friend or two to help them, um, but they're not funded. They don't really have a constant stream of commercials because commercials go where audiences are. And these audiences are not, you know, mega audiences, not millions or even hundreds of thousands. You know, independent broadcasters these days, streaming broadcasters, they're lucky if they have, you know, a few thousand listeners at any one time. Now, as with cable, and when I say cable, I'm talking about, you know, the, the movie channel, uh, cable news networks, whatever. The way they make up for smaller audiences in terms of live uh, programs is they rerun their programming 24-7. Like, for instance, if you miss any of the uh, uh, new shows on CNN or MSNBC during the daytime, afternoon, primetime, evening – if you're up at 3 o'clock in the morning, you can tune in Rachel Maddow or you can tune in um, uh, Chris, whatever. And there they are. Again, smaller broadcasters are operating on a totally different economic and production paradigm. So when it comes to the other side of midnight, which is done like uh, Art used to do his show on Coast to Coast out of uh, you know the trailer across the, the way from the house – uh, his studio. The difference being that, yeah, he was alone in the desert. I'm alone in, I think, a nicer desert. It's got more mountains, more interesting scenery. We're almost a mile high here, uh, gorgeous views, most of the time really astonishingly nice weather. The difference being that Art had Premier behind him. So if there was any kind of a technical problem, he could turn to the network like, remember the nights he had satellite issues and all that? And ultimately, that engineering staff would solve it. When we have power problems, when we have communications problems, when we have computer issues, there ain't nobody out there except for Keith and me and Kinthea and sometimes Robert, who's over in France, and you know a couple other people that we can maybe call upon in emergencies. And primarily, we're scattered around the world, so physically, there's no one to help this show from me here in this studio tonight in the Land of Enchantment for, well, let's say 500 to 1,000 miles around. We're it. We're all by our lonesome in the high desert. So in the last week, you know, or several months, I, I, let me back up and say this. You've noticed that California, with high winds, had been turning off the power. I have a suspicion 
that other states and communities have been doing the same thing, but not advertising it because of their much lower population density. The political backlash is much less. The power goes out. I mean, we used to, uh, uh, Robin and I, when we moved here many, many, many years ago, decades ago, we used to joke about the Tinker Toy Power Company because it'd be a beautiful, nice day. You'd be going along and suddenly no power and no notice, no warning. You'd call the power company and they would have some kind of recording and it would say uh, power will be back on by so-and-so. And so-and-so, the time would come, and the time would go, and uh, no power. Well, last Friday, week ago Friday, I think. Uh, I forget what the date was, but it was it was a Friday night. Um, I woke up in the morning. Was it, was it in the morning? Yeah, it was in the morning on, on the Friday. And I was still trying to recover from the flu and feeling lousy and... Not in a good mood and, you know, the usual. And there was no power. Nothing worked. Lights were out. Fans were silent. No furnace. No nothing. But the sun was shining. At least it was shining at about 8 o'clock in the morning. So, of course, I picked up the phone because I have a landline. And landlines, good old AT&T, they put in battery backup so that even if everything failed, if you had a landline with AT&T, You had a phone, and with a phone, you can do things. So I called the power company, and the recording said, cheerily, power will be restored by 11.30. So I thought, okay, 11.30, it's getting chilly. I went back to bed, piled on another comforter, went to sleep, you know, woke up maybe midnight, midnight, uh, noon, one o'clock, looked around, no lights, no little indicator lights, television lights were dark, computer light was dark. Uh-oh, call the power company again. New recording, brightly. Uh, dear subscriber, um, we shall restore power by 4.30 this afternoon. And I'm thinking, hmm. So, agonizingly the time, when you're really feeling bad, you know, and you can't even fix a can of soup, or coffee, or tea, or anything. So I went back, huddled under the comforters, and waited increasingly impatiently for 4.30, which came and went, and nothing. So I tried calling the phone company again. And this time, the voice on the recording said brightly, power will be restored by 8.30. It's interesting how they always were picking the half hour. Well, you know the drill by now. 8.30 came and went. It's now dark. It's getting really cold. It's 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 very it's winter outside, folks. You know, even though it isn't technically, you know, the twenty first that happens next weekend, it's winter in the desert, in the high desert. Well, to save, you know, long airtime and whatever, because I want to get to Rick, power was not restored here until eight o'clock on Saturday morning. By which time everything was very, very cold having had a 24-hour chill down to ambient desert temperatures. I think the temperature in the bathroom was like 48, 49, something like that. Um, needless to say, when you're not feeling well, that's that's not a good thing to have happen. And I tried calling the phone company. I mean, I tried calling like in the middle of the night, 
after the eight o'clock or eight thirty time thing had gone and come and gone, and there was no phones. My landline, my life, you know, linked to the universe, was dead as a doornail. So of course I'm thinking, what did I do? And I forget, I forget to pay the bill, etc. Because all in my childhood, whatever would happen, storms, hell, high water, hurricanes, whatever, the landline would work, and we always had a phone. Well, turns out that in Placitas, New Mexico, on that Friday, because of the high wind, remember the high winds we talked about? They lost seven telephone poles around town. It just came down. And as my my friend uh, next door, Paul, said, he says, you're lucky we got power. He was, by the way, 100 miles away at their other house, so he didn't go through any of this. But when he came back, he had talked to the, the guys in town, and you know he's kind of connected to the political infrastructure. And they said, oh, yeah, we lost seven telephone poles. So he was telling me I should be thankful that we got power back on you know this side of several days, uh, given that seven poles simultaneously had dropped dead. Which, of course, is a cautionary tale. Now, there's some of you out there saying craftily, why isn't Hoagland prepared with backups? Why doesn't he have backup power? Why doesn't he have backup heat? Why, you know, It all comes down to one thing, guys. Money. When I started this show, when Art inveigled me into starting this show, one of the things I envisioned that we would be able to do based on subscribers would be to buy a Musk uh, Tesla Powerwall, which is about seven grand. But that would take us at the minimal power usage that we have, because everything is solid state, uh, except for the furnace. And all that needs is a uh, electrical trigger to work. It's gas. Um, would be power that would be very minimal. All the lights are LEDs. All the computers are, you know, computers don't take a lot. Um, so we're we're really well fixed in terms of usage, provided there's any power at all. Well, obviously this show has not made any money over the last I don't know how many years. It's it's it was basically keeping it afloat. More recently, it's been losing money, and that's because we need more subscribers. Hint hint. In this Christmas season, why doesn't someone give a gift subscription to the other side of midnight? Because every subscriber is almost 10 bucks, and believe me, every one of you subscribers, we love dearly. We love fervently. We cherish, because you're what literally is keeping us on the air. Now, when we get to the bottom of the hour, um, we're going to introduce something new tonight, and I'm not going to spoil the surprise, but it may help us in terms of uh, uh, defraying some of the cost of the show. I truly hope so, so I want you to pay very close attention to what I'm going to talk about at the bottom of the hour. And we may do it a couple more times during the show because it's something so important and so worthwhile that we're going to remember the watchword of media is if it's worthwhile, you'll hear it again and again and again. You must be redundant. So, um, be that as it may, I want to give that as background to why we've not been on the air for several weeks, aside from my personal uh, health situation, because technology and time and resources have not allowed me to craft the appropriate backups that we really, and I totally admit this, we should have in place. As Tennessee Ernie Ford used to say, uh, God willing, the creek don't rise in the coming year, 
the resources will be there for those appropriate backups, and we will be much more reliable as one of your favorite programs. Segwaying. Many years ago, as I got into this, Art told me, he says, don't you ever, ever, don't you even dare think, don't you, don't you breathe the idea that you're going to talk about politics. He says, people hate politics. The problem is, uh, tonight I'm going to do some politics. Uh, and the reason is because politics has gotten so strange, has gotten so other side of midnight strange, which is why we're going to have George Lambert on in the second hour. And... Uh, we're going to talk about the metaphysics of what's going on right now, and that's why we're going to delve into the no-no of no-nos in uh, alternative talk radio politics. So gird your loins. It's an ancient phrase. And hang on. Dr. Richard Spence is professor of history at the University of Idaho. I think I said Utah before. His interests include Russian and military history, along with espionage, occultism, and anti-Semitism. His major published works include Boris Sakhanov, Renegade on the Left, Trust No One, The Secret World of Sidney Riley, Secret Agent 666, Aleister Crowley, British Intelligence and the Occult, and Wall Street and the Russian Revolution, 1905 to 1925. Rick is the author of numerous articles in Revolutionary Russia Intelligence and National Security, the Journal for the Study of Anti-Semitism, American Communist History, The Historian, New Dawn, and other, other publications. He has been interviewed on numerous programs and has been a com commentator and consultant for the History Channel, the International Spy Museum, Radio Liberty, and documentaries produced by the Russian Cultural Foundation. He is also our resident historian on the other side of midnight. Dr. Spence, welcome back. Good evening, Richard, and I'm glad you're back, too. <laughs> well, you know, God willing and the creek don't rise. Yeah, okay. Right. Okay, so let's tackle the untackleable. What the hell is going on with this impeachment, and why aren't people looking at it historically, but more like a tempest in a teapot when the actual substantial um, details strike at the heart of what the founding fathers were so upset about and really fearful of 243 years ago, which is that a foreign power would swoop in and have extraordinary influence in a domestic uh, presidential election. Well, this will be the third time in American history that a sitting president will be indicted by Congress. And if things continue through, uh, it will then continue into a trial in the Senate. And that's one of those things that can get confusing about it. I, you know, I don't know why the Finding Fathers set things up this way, but that's the way they set it up. And it was important enough for them to basically address impeachment in, in Article 1. So Basically, impeachment is a way of recalling or forcing from office a president, and it is initiated in the legislative branch, in the congressional branch. So what happens, what's happened recently is that Congress, the House of Representatives, has brought articles of impeachment 
against Donald Trump. And those are essentially charges. So one of the things to keep in mind is that charges are like an indictment. That's basically what they've done. They've, they've acted as if they were a, a kind of grand jury. They're not. And they have brought charges. Okay, so th those are the accusations, and then, then those accusations. Well, hang on a second. Which in this case, in, okay, in, in, yeah. in the two previous 20th century impeachments, you know, Richard Nixon and uh, Bill Clinton, weren't yeah. there special counsels which had done all the investigatory legwork? So all Congress had to do was basically look through the evidence, as opposed to doing the investigation itself. Well, special counsels bore the weight of that. I mean, in, in Nixon's case, though, keep in mind, Nixon resigned before right. he went through. He may, he may well have been – he probably you know, would have been convicted, but it doesn't really – he resigned and, and terminated the process there. So the only two people who have actually been formally gone through the whole process are Andrew Johnson back in 1868 and then Bill Clinton in 1998. And in both of their cases – they were acquitted in the Senate. So one of the things that's interesting about impeachment is although the process has been there since the beginning, it's in the first, it's in Article One of the Constitution, and it has been carried through twice, and it's been threatened or, or initiated at least two more times, one against Nixon, and then the other one, I think, back in the 1840s against Tyler, against John Tyler. And I'm not sure how far that one gotten got, but that was again part of the in, internal spat. Um, you know, Johnson's impeachment in 1868 was pretty much, you could say, a, a political vendetta. His whole problem was that he had uh, tried to fire his Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton. He wanted to replace him with Ulysses S. Grant, and. You know, Johnson had taken power with the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. He wasn't popular for that reason. It was viewed that he wasn't really elected. Um, he was also considered to be soft on Reconstruction. Stanton was considered to be a hawk on Reconstruction. And Congress basically passed a bill that was called the uh, Tenure of Office Act, which was pretty much passed to keep Edwin Stanton his job. And so one of the things that Johnson the, – the primary charge against him – I think there were about a dozen of them in all, including things like you know being unpleasant and, I don't know, spitting tobacco. <laughs> it wasn't quite that, but it, it was, they were essentially behavioral things. He was considered to be ill-mannered, but it was violation of the Tenure of Office Act. And the interesting thing about Johnson's case is that he was saved from conviction by one vote. Hmm. So, yeah, it was 35, 4, and 19 against. And the tricky part is that the indictment in the House only requires a majority vote. That's all you have to have to send the charges forward. But to get a conviction to make it count, you have to have a two-thirds vote in the Senate. And in the modern Senate, that would mean 67 out of 100. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, the, the wording is kind of interesting. It's, it's two-thirds of those present. Oh. So we'll assume that everyone <laughs> would show up. Is that a loophole but, or big enough to drive the um, enterprise through? 
how many other people might well there are all kinds of things about that that are that are strange and and again i would stress i'm an historian i'm not a lawyer uh watched a lot of crime shows but i'm not a lawyer <laughs> so i i think so, someone who was a a constitutional uh historian or someone who was a, a legal historian would would probably have some more insight on this but there are a lot of things that strike me as is kind of strange about it so in in Article One, the the actual offenses for which someone can be impeached uh, and sent to trial are treason and bribery. I guess those are fairly obvious ones, and then high crimes and misdemeanors. So high crimes are basically felonies. Misdemeanors are just that. They're the same then as they were now. They're essentially small-time crimes. Well, 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 well. I heard a definition the other day, and I think it was Lawrence Tribe who said that it's not – really, they should have stuck another word in there because they mean high crimes and high misdemeanors, not what we think of today because language has shifted in two centuries. Yeah, but they – but I I don't know. I, I uh, I, I would defer to, to his legal knowledge, but it's still misdemeanors are lesser crimes than felonies. Right, okay? right. They're never held to be the same thing. I'm not even sure that the term high misdemeanor, since misdemeanors are by nature low crimes. In any case, if you think of it in this way, if you include felonies, so in other words, treason, bribery, felonies, misdemeanors, everything. There's that. That's a very broad set of categories. So a, a a a president can be cited for impeachment because of treason, for bribery, which I think is probably what they were mostly concerned with, high crimes, any sort of felony, and misdemeanors. So it covers a wide, you know, a essentially anything. A broad spectrum. And yeah. a a very broad spectrum. Well, there's so another there's another element. At, yeah. There's another element here. It's been emphasized again and again and again that an impeachment is not technically a legal process even though the constitution is of course the you know first law of the land that it's a political process so some wags have said that you know a high crime or misdemeanor is whatever the house at the time thinks it is which makes it incredibly broad yes okay so one of the charges against trump one is abuse of power the other is obstruction of congress and here's the thing that I would be interested to know. What precisely is obstruction of Congress? Well, in terms of if, the specifics – If someone told me I had committed that crime, I would want to know right. what it was I had done, and I don't understand what obstruction of Congress is. Well, I believe those were enumerated in the, in the articles under that second um, category. In this case, as soon as the impeachment inquiry was announced – the president announced, you know, countervailing that he was not going to provide any witnesses, any documents, any documentation, access to State Department files, DOD files, OMB files. In other words, he was cutting Congress off at the knees to getting any information at all. And that's what their obstruction of Congress is is based on. So the argument then comes whether or not he was within his legal rights as president to withhold that information. As one of the three so-called co-equal branches of government. Because if the president can arbitrarily say, okay, I'm being tried for – you know, I'm I'm being tried in an impeachment process, but I'm not going to give him anything, 
does that not take the power that Congress has in the Constitution and abrogate it to the executive branch? And how can you have three equal branches if one branch can veto automatically any inquiry? Well, is he also protected under the Fifth Amendment? In terms of basically saying if he's on trial – I, of, of of presenting in the position of presenting evidence against himself, of testifying against himself. So if the argument was that any evidence that he provided could uh, tend to incriminate him, then he's protected by the Fifth Amendment. But does that extend beyond the person of the president or his entire administration? Mm, I mean this gets really like interesting because whatever this decision is… I have a feeling, Rick, we're looking at an historical high-water mark in terms of the fundamental organizational structure of the United States of America. Yeah, and I want to make it clear here that you know we're talking about politics, and you know I can just tell you and those out there that you know they're pretty much in the way this turns out. Uh, again, I'm going to take this sort of agnostic route. I don't have any great. I'm not obsessed. I'm not, I'm not obsessed, but you know, let's put it that way. Uh, but I, part of it is that the the process itself is, you know, again, as you noted, it's it's not even technically, if you want to argue it a trial, then but you're nevertheless calling it a trial, and someone's job is at stake. Right. Um, and it, you know, it's it's one of those things. It's a trial, but it's not a trial. You know, the other argument you make is a political vendetta. Hey, you know, Rick, you're too damn interesting. Yeah, we're going over time. We're at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning, my first guest, is Dr. Richard Spence. We're talking about the I-word impeachment. You're on the other side of midnight. Join us at our phone numbers. We shall return. Sunday night, December 15th, um, and it's chilly outside, temperatures falling. Fortunately, it's nice and warm inside. So, Rick, this whole idea of, of impeachment appears to be built on a totally political premise that it's whatever the prevailing majority believe a president has done that uh, – Triggers this this uh, ensuing cascade of events, culminating with a trial in the Senate, which is not really a trial because if it was a trial, uh, Mitch McConnell a couple of days ago said he's working very very closely with the White House, which of course means he should uh, recuse himself as the foreman of the trial process because he's already voted that uh, he's going to you know, acquit the president at all costs, as have several other senators. So how can you have jurors uh, being objective, even pretending objectivity, if they're basically biased uh, from the get-go? Well, I think that unfortunately happens with a lot of juries. (laughs) But, yeah, I mean, I, I... The thing that strikes me about all of this is, again, I would go back to the fact that I am not a lawyer, but you know, if I if this just looks like one actionable thing after another. I mean, the 
the you know the, the charges themselves are are kind of made up in a way, um, and I'm not just singling this out. Um, there, you know, politics is certainly fueling this. I mean, it's being driven largely by one party against a president from another party, and that's been the case in. You know, this was certainly the case in the Clinton one, to put it as well. I mean, remember Hillary talking about the gigantic right-wing conspiracy against her husband. And whatever it was that, you know, leaving aside, let's say, whether it's Trump or whether it's Clinton or even think whether it was Johnson, Tyler, that in, in any of those cases, if you look at it, whatever their actual impeachable offenses, I mean, whatever they did that may or may not have been, or even let's say that everything they did may have been actually impeachable. On the other hand, the action always seems to have been driven simply by a, a clique or an opposition party that was determined to unseat or as discomfort as much as possible a president they didn't like. All right, so the 98 impeachment of Clinton was fueled and largely driven by really just a lot of hatred of Bill Clinton. Whether it's deserved or not, I'm not going to say. But there was there was an animus towards that individual, and a desire to, if not get him out of office, to make his time in office as uncomfortable and as humiliating as possible. And much the same. And, and there's an animus against Trump. There was an animus against Johnson. And so it's one of those things. Again, you've you've got so much, you know. <laughs> You've got so much obvious sort of prejudice both in those indicting and in those in which it's going to be thrown for a trial is that you know it, it would be a kind of mockery of a, of a legal of a legal – I mean there's you know, – again, there's the protect, or the Fifth Amendment protections there. Uh, it, can it be appealed? Let's, let's say Trump is convicted. Let, let's say the thing that some people fear will happen – I don't think it will – is that 20 Republican senators – are going to flip, join the other side, and give them the 67 votes necessary. That's what it would take, assuming that every Democrat and the two independents that generally vote as Democrats would, would vote for impeachment. You're going to have to get 20 of the 53 Republican senators to go over to the other side. That's going to be more – You know, some Democrats, there probably will be a few who won't. There may be some Republicans who will. Uh, those would probably balance each other out. I mean – the, the reality is that the possibility of getting a two-thirds conviction in the Senate, I'm not going to say that's impossible. It's unlikely. That is unlikely to succeed. And then you've got to consider that I think there certainly were people in every one of these cases who in the indicting House, in the half of Congress that, that's, that's fueling this, knew they were never going to get a conviction. And I think most of the people behind this don't actually expect that they're actually they're really going to get a conviction, but it's it's the process itself, it's the delegitimizing de process. You know, we can't maybe we can't actually get this guy out of office, but again, we can demean his time and position in office as as much as we can. Uh, so it, it's a lot of it. You know, sort of strikes me as as much vindictiveness as anything else. Mm. So. so all right, let me ask this question. Yeah. When the founders were creating this experiment, we were obviously under the the thumb, under the heel of uh, whatever metaphor you want, of mm -hmm. you know, a very tyrannical guy in England, George III. 
And the reaction about a chief executive having unlimited power with no check on that power was part of what the revolution was all about. So there was a mechanism in place, and Madison argued very strongly. In fact, I think Hamilton, during some of the conversations in Federalist 51, talks about how Madison converted him from not wanting an impeachment process to seeing that one was really necessary. How would you go about, in a Democratic or Republican system, removing a chief executive who basically ran roughshod over you know, all kinds of, of things that were the founding principles of the country, as at the start of which was the interference of foreign you know, powers in domestic political uh, deliberation? Well, I, th- I think having some means to remove a president is is reasonable. I'm I'm not I'm not saying that the they, the idea is bad. I'm just, I, frankly I'm just not really sure that the way they have it laid out here works. And the point is, it never actually has worked up to this point. Or I mean, or the infraction has not risen to the level. I mean, you obviously want to set yeah. the bar very high, right? Because you don't want misdemeanors, you know, like you know, stealing mailboxes. President cannot be impeached for stealing a mailbox, even though it is against federal law. Um, there's got to be some common sense that comes in here. The fact that it's been tried three times in 240 some years and has never worked, except it did work politically with Richard Nixon. He just left, as opposed to being, you know, uh, convicted in the Senate. Well. I- and then you could say it, it was successful in compelling him to resign, but it it's not going to get Trump to resign. It didn't get Clinton to resign. It didn't get Johnson to resign. I mean, that, that's kind of a well, an iffy right. thing to, to stake all of this on is that you're going to harass them enough so that eventually they'll just they'll just give up and leave. And in most cases, that's probably not going to happen. Um, and, and then again, if he was, is there an appeal? Well, I don't see it in the Constitution. Mentions that, well, there's nothing in the Constitution, but you know, the view there are two views of the Constitution. One is that if it's not in the Constitution, it's not there, and if it's uh, not in the Constitution, that's just somehow because it was forgotten. Then we can we can add it. <laughs> well, I know in the last and several. Remember, oh yeah. I know in the last several months, the president has said rather plaintively, you know. Where's the Supreme Court? Why can't we go to them You know, in terms of impeachment? In other words, he's asking, is there an appeal? And if he were convicted, that's what – you know, if I was his attorney, that's what I would advise him to do is to appeal. Appeal to the Supreme Court, to the third branch of government. So is it so possible if that nothing, this – If there's nothing in the Constitution that says that you can do it, there's nothing that says that you can't. Okay, which means and, you need the third branch to make the legal decision. But isn't that kind of fundamental to the process of the United States itself, which is a work in progress that never has arrived? In other words, some well, of these things did. some of these things have never ever been tested. They should be tested. Is this the right appropriate kind of test? Well, you could add another question in here is that okay, let's assume that the president is convicted and do they leave right now? I mean, are they out the next day? Is is there in a period of, of appeal? 
And this is one of the things in the American legal system and the whole basis of this, the concept of an appeal is is ingrained within that. The idea that a person – think of this. One of the things that impeachment is, has been compared to, and I think fairly, is that instead of a criminal trial, which it, which it isn't, it's, it's more like an employment review. All right? So in most companies, uh, certainly in universities you work for and elsewhere, if uh, an employee is considered to have uh, impeached their integrity or to have otherwise violated rules, there's a whole internal process. There's a hearing, faculty hearing, and there are always appeals to those. There's no decision to which an, an appeal cannot be made. So well, wait, 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 wait. Let, me, let me, let me, let me yeah. argue against that because we have also yeah. impeachment of federal judges. And I don't know how many federal judges have been kicked out by act of Congress, and there is no appeal. Mm-hmm. Once they're gone, they're gone. Then, then you could argue that a president shouldn't have one either, but he's, then again, he's not a federal judge. <laughs> he's a president of the United States. It's, uh, it's kind of a mess. Well, I mean, or, kind of, or, 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 or looking at this in the, in, the, in the realm of the glass half full, it's an extraordinary opportunity for enlightenment and elucidation and furthering of the development of the United States of America. It would be an interesting test for the republic. A, a test which has been avoided or dodged one way or the other up to that time. But but it would, it's been a raise. I think what I would say is that if it went through, it would only – it wouldn't resolve – it wouldn't have the, the kind of clear-cut resolution that people would expect. It's one of those things that would go on because you sort of entered unknown territory, and you're going to have to determine how the rest of the process goes. Hmm. Okay, I want to pick up some other threads on this when Georgia joins us in the next 15 minutes or so. Let's switch gears. What is this incredible power that Russia holds over this country? Why are we so obsessed with a with a country which, if it didn't have nukes, and there are a lot of other countries on the planet that have nukes that we're not obsessed with now, Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Why is Russia at the center of this swirling vortex of uh, political chicanery? Well, it's got a lot of nukes. Let me add that there more than, than India and Pakistan. You know, you mentioned something earlier, and one of the you, – you Yeah, but even, this, even, this even, one, of, yeah. even one, Rick, in, over New York gives you a very bad hair day and destroys the United States. So it's not the number. It's not the no. number. You know, it's the old phrase back in the 80s, how many times can you make the rubble bounce? We in Russia are at a standoff. They don't dare do anything nuclear because we'll clobber them and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So what – beside that gives Russia this extraordinary hold on the body politic of the United States in the early part of the 21st century? I think part of it is that they make an, an easily definable enemy. Based upon recent history and tradition, 50 years of the Cold War left a, a, a deep residual suspicion of Russia. It was, it was the adversary for a very long period of time. And I think even if there are a lot of Americans alive today who don't remember that. <laughs> well, uh, I do. Never, nevertheless, well, I do, you do, you know, but… <laughs> 
there, there are many, there are many people. See, what's so interesting to I, me, I, Rick, I, yeah. is that the, the party which all my, you know, growing up stood for mm-hmm. anti-communism, anti-Russia, anti-Soviet Union, anti-everything in terms of that power, has completely reversed 180 degrees. You've got Senator Jack Kennedy, no relation, in from Louisiana, quoting Putin's intelligence talking points on national television about how Ukraine is this horrible, corrupt, corrosive country that did meddle in the the 2016 election, which, of course, is a flat-ass lie. Why are we so captivated by the Republicans now, are so captivated that suddenly Russia is their best friend, regardless of what they do, and it's the Democrats who are the anti-Russian, anti-communist party. How did that happen almost overnight? A sense of political advantage. I mean, it, it's it's something that the Democrats can use to beat the Republicans over the head with, fairly or fairly or foully. And I mean, I, I don't think it rests upon any really deep, genuinely considered fear of Russia, because if you actually spent any time analyzing the situation and thinking about it, there's nothing really to be afraid of. It's not a matter of fear. It's a matter of having a politically exploitable, acceptable enemy. You see, Islamic terrorists just could never play that well because they weren't con- they weren't connected to any kind of clear power structure you know they were scary uh we'll have to spend billions of dollars hunting them down around the world but there wasn't the sense um there wasn't the sense of a kind of viable enemy that you could kind of get your teeth into if you could think about it and the russians had served that that they had been the adversary for so long and and keep in mind, if you go back in that period, you know, from 1945 all the way up to the 1980s, um, they gave the U.S. a run for their money. They were a serious adversary. They were about the most serious adversary that you could find. And they were one, they were one who, for much of that time, was was gaining on you in various aspects. So the collapse of the USSR certainly I made mean, the difference between the modern Russian Federation. And the former USSR is that if you actually look at them on the map, they look pretty much the same. So mm. you can kind of look there and you can go, well, you know, Russia is as big as the USSR, so everything else is there. Good old Mercator the projections. <laughs> they Well, they got uh, – there's still over 80% of the territory of the former USSR. Mm-hmm. So overwhelmingly, 80%, 80 to 85% of the territory. But only half the population. So Russia today has a population of something less than 150 million people. The USSR, at the time of its collapse in the early 1990s, had a population very close to around 300 million. Comparable to so ours. The other half of the population, yeah, the, the other population, you know, went off into Ukraine, Belarus, uh, the the Stans in Central Asia. So Russia had 80 percent of the of, of the territory, and along with that, keep in mind much of the mineral wealth and infrastructure. But only half the population. But there was also another change. And this is one I was just talking to in the last week of class to my students about a couple of days ago, was that the, the important change is that within the USSR, which was a, as they would always proudly announce, was a, you know, a, a house of many nationalities, uh, over 100 
really, sort of distinct ethnic groups, um, some very small, some very large. The Russians were the largest, but in the Soviet Empire, as in the Tsarist Empire before it, Russians per se were slightly less than half the population. The other half of the population was made up of this whole vast mosaic, mosaic of peoples, you know, Ukrainians, Belarusians, who were in many ways very similar to the Russians, their culture had cultural affinities, others who were very different. But what happened is that when the USSR collapsed, 80% of the territory became the Russian Federation. That had about 150 million people, and 85% of those were Russians. So mm. for the first time, really, in around 300 years, Russia went from being an empire of many peoples effectively ruled by Russians to being a Russian national state. One of the things that did is that it changed the outlook of the country from an imperial outlook to that of a of a national state. That is, as a more national, a more if you want to think in some ways, a kind of more tribal aspect or ethnic aspect than it did previously. Ethnicity became, you know, ethnicity was a kind of forbidden word. It was a dirty word in the Soviet Union in which everyone was to be united in the glories of socialism under the Communist Party. Mm -hmm. Therefore, the whole idea is it didn't matter if you were a Russian or a Ukrainian or a Tajik, see, because you all lived under the, the Soviet, you were all Soviets. When that overarching identity disappeared, you're now left with a Russian national state. And I think in the Russian side, that has made them much more centered on what they see as their particular national interests. Well, remember what, That's Putin's, what they're interested in. Yeah. Remember what Putin's excuse for invading Ukraine and, and in what 2014 and taking Crimea was that most of those people were Russians, ethnic Russians. They were. And they wanted to be part of Russia, and that began this very uncomfortable destabilizing process. I mean, since World War II, no other nation had invaded another nation and taken a chunk of territory. It was it's so archaic, it's so oh my, it's so retro. Like you're doing what? And that has begun this ball rolling in all dimensions again with nuclear weapons in the background. And then there came the sanctions, and then there came Putin's interest in undermining the U.S. election, which was I – I would say that they are punching so far above their weight, uh, Rick, in terms of electronic in, 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 in invasion of the United States social order, this idea of social media pitting people against each other, one side against the other side, lies, treasonous – ideas, uh, patriotic slogans, fake conferences, fake demonstrations. I mean, the Russian efforts in 2016 were not small. They were extraordinarily adventurous, and they worked. Does Is that what makes the current Russia headed by Putin dangerous coming up to 2020? I, I don't see that anything unusual happened in, in 2016. Um, I, I see a kind of political exploitation of it. I mean, one, there, there's sort of the assumption here that somehow – I mean there, there are a couple of kind of you – know, the idea that the Russians can somehow, you know, in, unless they're going in and they're taking over electronic voting machines and changing votes, right? the only thing they're doing is that they're engaging in propaganda. Except we now know in, we now know that they did all corner exploratory forays 
and our voting system is so archaic and so really, you know, rattle trap that that's the next phase. That's what they could do in 2020. Well, only if you let them. But we're not doing I anything mean, only, to stop only, them. But, Trump won't do anything to stop them. There was a bill. I've talked you know, about this on the show many times. There's a bill yeah. that was supposed to, you know, go through the House and Senate. It was sitting there as bi- bipartisan. McConnell will not bring it up for a vote because it'll be voted yes, and then Trump will have to either accede to it or veto it, and Trump doesn't want it. Why? Because he wants help. He sat in the Oval Office with Stephanopoulos and said, if somebody, you know, another country has dirt on my guys coming up, of course I'm going to listen to them, which, of course, makes the Founding Fathers spinning like little HD rotisseries in their graves. They might, but I don't know. What, what do you think Franklin Delano Roosevelt would have said if someone had offered him dirt on his opposition? Well, when you say someone, it's not someone – we're talking like someone in another nation state. Yeah. That's different. And every, there are elections that are held all over the world, and in every one of those elections, the United States is a country who has interests all over the world, has an interest in who is who becomes the chief executive in Argentina, has an interest in who is, becomes the chief executive in, in Bolivia, there's a case for it, and others. We, we always have an interest, and there's, there's generally one of those candidates that you prefer over another one. I mean, from the standpoint of American interest, it is an American interest that in this election, it would be better for us if candidate A won over candidate B. In that case, is there anything that we can do that would facilitate the election of the candidate we prefer? Right. And the thing is, Richard, is that in real politics around the world, that is what everybody is doing. Why wouldn't they? I mean, but do, from the standpoint but, but, but of the, hang on, yeah. hang on. Do these nations in their yeah. in their constitutional process do they have fundamental tenets specifically prohibiting that, like we do? I mean, foreign intervention. Mm-hmm. Yes. No. The, the idea that all countries are never supposed to interfere in each other's affairs, but that's a complete fiction. Countries interfere in each other's affairs all the time, every chance they get. And, and it, because there's a simply a practical reason for them to do that. I mean, look in, in the in the uh, in the you know the recent election in Britain between Boris Johnson and Cor- I mean, it, I you know I think overall the sentiment uh, well it would depend in, in, in certain quarters or for one party or another. And uh, do you want do you want the candidate you have to is there something that you can do? I mean, look when all else fails, you carry out a coup d'état. The United States has done that in any number of countries. When it couldn't get the when it couldn't get the person it wanted, when there was an inconvenient prime minister in control of Iran in 1953, we overthrew him. When there was an, an, a president we didn't like in Guatemala in the 1950s, we overthrew him. When there was a president in Chile, in which we didn't like, which was you know true, he was a lefty, but he was you know democratic elected. But so what? He isn't the guy we want. There's a military coup, and we murder him in the process. All right, and that goes on and on and on. So merely using, I mean, considering the amount of power that can be sort of nakedly employed to influence the politics of other countries, I mean, and here's where I think Americans are just being a naive. You can't routinely engage in that kind of activity, no matter how ignorant the American public is of it or wants to be of it. You can't do that 
decade after decade from one place to another and assume that the, no one is ever going to do it to you. I mean, well, that, that's, that's what it is that, that Americans that, seem to be shocked That is by. basically Trump's argument. He says, well, you know, we do it too. But see, that reduces the world to basically tooth and claw. It's like, what are laws for anyway? It has been widely accepted that all that interference that we did, the CIA did in you know, um, Iran and uh, back in the 50s and leading forward through the, you know, the whole Iraq situation, it was, it was wrong. Allende was wrong. You know, what was it, the uh, great banana fruit company that yeah. ran you know, foreign policy for the United States and South America? It's always wrong. We acknowledge we shouldn't have done that. And there was a church committee, and there was, in other words, we have a process where we start rooting out this stuff. Hey, look, we are, we're at the top of the hour. We've got to stop here for a couple of things. Okay. My guest this morning is Dr. Richard Spence. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.